joining us in an incredible time of worship. Uh, if you guys don't know me, my name is James, I'm a ministry worker here, um, and I'm incredibly excited um, to move into a space where we'll be going into God's Word this morning. And this morning we'll be finishing up our series on Jesus in the Psalms. I'm so excited to lead us into Psalm 8 this morning. The Psalm has promises for us and for our Christian lives that I, I believe are deeply significant and central to, I think, how we are supposed to live out our faith this morning. Psalm 8 sits in between two groups of psalms, Psalms 3 to 7 and 9 to 14. And David has written all of these. And what David does in Psalms 3 to 7 is that he's complaining to the Lord about his suffering. And in Psalms 9 to 14, he's complaining about the suffering of weak people under the hand of evil oppression. oppression, Sorry. And right in, right in between these two groups of psalms, David puts Psalm 8. And this stands as a standalone centerpiece of hope for the two groups of people that he is talking about in Psalms 3 to 7 and 9 to 14. And so he writes this psalm as a centerpiece of hope that God will come and restore broken and afflicted people. The psalm shows us how God displays his glory through the weak and powerless in the world. And this gives us beautiful insight into the work and the person of Jesus. So this morning we're going to be looking at this passage in three steps. Firstly, we'll take out two main truths from this psalm that I think are central to the message today. And once we've done that, we'll look at how wonderfully this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. And then finally, we will allow Scripture to guide us into how we can live this out in our lives. And so as we dive in, I pray that we would be encouraged to lean into God in the midst of our struggles and weaknesses. Whatever we are going through right now, may we come and lay it aside at the feet of Jesus this morning. And may His glory and power at work in our lives become the center of our heart's desires. So pray with me before we dive into Psalm 8, if you will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather this morning and celebrate who you are and what you've done in the world. Thank you that we can dedicate Samuel this morning. We can be together in fellowship as as the spiritual family and worship you and praise you for all you've done in our lives. Lord, we can bring lots of baggage and burdens into church on a Sunday morning. And God, you call us to bring those burdens in with us, but you don't call us to carry them all the way through. You you tell us to lay them at your feet and to come and find rest in your presence. So Lord, lead us as we go into Psalm 8. May we be enriched and encouraged that your power and strength works within our weakness as people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, join me in reading Psalm 8. It's nine verses packed with glory. David starts writing, he says, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? human beings that you should care for them. Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. 
You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. The flocks and the herds and all the wild animals. The birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Amen. So what is this poem saying about God? That's the one question we're asking this morning. And I think there are two main truths that I'd like us to examine together. The first thing that we see in the psalm is that the glory of God is made central. God's glory is the beginning and the end of the psalm, just as it is the beginning and the end of our lives. And we saw that earlier as we were dedicating Samuel, that we exist for the glory of God. We have been made to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But take a look at how the psalm starts and ends. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. When you see this in Scripture, you know that everything in between these verses, the beginning and the end, this is the central desire of David, that the glory of God would be on display, and that he would be worshipped. Whatever the rest of the psalm says, the main goal is that God's glory would be established. And so this psalm is situated in between two cries out of affliction and, and suffering. David is struck by the brokenness that he sees and the brokenness that he's going through. And he's just crying out at this point. And I think we can all relate to this. It doesn't take long of looking into media headlines and newspaper headlines for us to just go, what is going on? I'm sure you've been at that point in your life. Sometimes I, I, I read a headline and I'm just, I'm just thinking, okay, Jesus is definitely coming back soon because this is getting completely out of hand, the things that I'm seeing around me in the world. And in these moments, we often stop and we complain to one another. But David does something different in verse 1. He begins his psalm of hope and lament, or in between his laments, by declaring the glory and majesty of God. That is his starting point and end point. And so this poem of hope begins and ends by declaring that our God is glorious and majestic. And church, may we be encouraged over all the good and the evil that we see in the world. Our God is still glorious and majestic over all of it. And he will be glorified. Suffering and brokenness comes and goes. But the glory and majesty of our God remains established over the world. Always. This is where we root our hope. God will be glorified and he will be faithful. And that's where we begin the psalm. That's the first thing we need to take away. And I pray that as we begin our times of lament and complaining, that we would begin with going, God is still glorious over everything that I'm seeing. He is still good and he's still in charge. The rest of the psalm then unpacks further the, the idea of how God is going to glorify himself. The purpose is that God's glory would be on display. And the verses in between, verse 1 to 9, say, how is he going to do that? And how does God glorify himself? And that leads us to the second truth of the psalm. Then the rest of the verses tell us this, that God displays his strength and power through the weak and powerless. God displays his strength and power through the weak and powerless of the world. Look back at verse 2. It says, You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. God is so gloriful, uh, powerful, sorry, I'm getting my words mixed up, powerful and glorious that He does not need our abilities and our strength to bring Him praise. He can use the praise of children to display His glory and to silence His enemies. 
And we're going to look into the New Testament later and we'll see how this is fulfilled in Jesus. What a beautiful upside-down truth. God's glory is not dependent on our strength and on our abilities. God displays his strength and power through the weak and powerless. And he will glorify himself by coming down and rescuing lowly people through his power in those people. And this is really the story of the Old Testament in many ways. But David goes on further. He begins verse 3 again with looking at God's glory in creation. And he contrasts it with us as, as insignificant people. It says in verse 3 to 4, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your, hand, of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. When David considers the enormous universe and the, and the beautiful galaxy that he sees around us, why does God care so much about us? These creatures that he made from the dust we see in Genesis. We are so small and insignificant compared to the moon and the stars, David says. But in verses 5 to 6, it takes a turn. And despite our weakness and our insignificance, God has chosen us and given us glory and honor. What an incredible statement and purpose for humanity. We have been made in his image and given a position a little lower than the angels, God's word says. These mere people that God has made from the dust of the earth have been given a role within creation that the moon and stars have not. He says, you gave them charge, verse 6, of, of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. Church, we aren't just made in his image. We are also tasked with exerting his rule and authority over the earth. The heavens above declare his glory, but humanity below carries out his will and authority. What an incredible purpose that we have in him. This is how God has chosen to establish his rule and authority and power over the earth. He uses the praise of children to silence his enemies. And he uses weak human beings made from dust to display his glory and his strength. This truth is central to the rest of the psalm and their message this morning. That he displays his strength and power through our weakness and our powerlessness. This is the hope that David has for the broken world that he sees around him. This is his hope for himself and those who he sees are suffering at the hands of evil. God in his wisdom and love has chosen that human weakness is the perfect vessel for his strength to be carried out to the world. And for his glory to be put on display. And this is central to this morning. And this is why we're here. And that's why David ends again the psalm with glorifying God. O oh Lord, our Lord, your majesty fills the earth. What a glorious mystery that God has chosen to use us. Small people made from the dust of the earth to bring his glory and strength to the world. And that is really Psalm 8 in a nutshell. You can spend hours and hours in here. But those are the two central truths to the psalm that we need to take away this morning. So far we've seen that God uses human, the weakness of man to display his glory. And that is the hope of the suffering of the world. But where do we see Jesus in the psalm? There is no overt prophecy here or mention of his name. 
And throughout the Old Testament, we do see ordinary people being used by God in extraordinary ways. To rescue God's people from slavery, like Moses. To lead his people into the promised land, like Joshua. To be great kings over Israel, like David and Solomon. Yet, while these figures were being used in incredible ways by God, even in their weakness, they weren't good enough to fix the problem of human sin and brokenness. They could not restore us to God permanently. Because even these great figures of the Old Testament had deep sin and failure and brokenness themselves. While God can use us greatly, church, we are not good enough to restore us to the Lord himself. He has to do that. And so the hope here is that one day there will be a human, a meek, lowly human made on the earth who in their weakness and lowliness will be able to be used by God to bring eternal salvation to people and to restore them to God. And so while David is is praising God for how he uses weak people and children to bring him glory, he's actually pointing far beyond his time. He's pointing ahead to to the day that God himself comes down to the earth as a meek, humble king. When Jesus, the Son of God, leaves his power and glory in heaven and becomes that same meek, lowly child that David is talking about in the psalm. And so Jesus, the Son of Man, comes to earth as a meek, humble king, and he suffers and dies on our behalf to save us, and he rises again to defeat God's enemies. Church, our hope of God's power in weak people is completely fulfilled in Jesus. He is the perfect example of God using the weakness of humans to display his glory and power. He did it in Jesus, and he will do it in us too. So what now we're going to do is look into the New Testament and see how Jesus fulfills the promises of Psalm 8 in two beautiful ways. We're going to look at Matthew 21 and Hebrews chapter 2. But let's read Matthew 21 first, verse 12 to 16. Verse 12 onwards. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Psalm 8, right there. Some context to this passage is that Jesus has just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the king of Israel. But he doesn't do so on a noble horse and isn't greeted by a huge parade. He comes in on a donkey and is greeted with palm leaves. Already there we see his humility and his lowliness as an ordinary man on earth, yet he is the son of God at the same time. Now he comes into the temple and he cleanses it of the people profiting off of the poor. And he begins to perform miracles and heal the lame and the blind. And just as Psalm 8 predicts, the children in the temple are praising him because they can see who he is. It's the faith of children that gives God glory here. 
And notice that the chief priests and the religious leaders have no idea how to respond. Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes. Have you not read Psalm 8? He says, you have taught children and infants to bring you praise. Here, God literally silences the enemies of Jesus with the praise of children. God is able, and he does, use childlike faith to accomplish his purposes on earth. The question for us is, are we being childlike in our faith and in our love and adoration of Jesus? Are we remaining in a heart of awe and wonder before Jesus? Or are we trying to make our own way through our spiritual walks? And trying to fill our heads with knowledge, yet we have not got any love and awe for our king. Because in our attempt to make ourselves as spiritual and righteous looking as possible, we become like the chief priests and we miss out on Jesus and what he is doing. But here the children see and they recognize this is the son of God, the son of David. That is the performance of Psalm 8 in Matthew 21. This beautiful picture of the children getting it. They get it. And the religious leaders who have all the knowledge of the scriptures miss out. Let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 to 10, where the author quotes Psalm 2 in quite a confusing passage, it seems. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but we'll unpack it together. From verse 6 onwards, For in one place the scriptures say, What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Or son of man that you should care for him? Yet you made, him, made them only a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. And now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under the authority. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into salvation. So here, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 quite heavily. But what does this mean for us? Why is he quoting this? And why does he say, all things have been given under human's authority, but we don't see all things under the authority yet. And it's this. Jesus fulfilled God's purpose for us that we failed to fulfill. I don't think that point's actually in the slideshow, unfortunately. Yeah, left that one out. Oh, there it is. Awesome. Jesus fulfills God's purpose for humanity. The author quotes the psalm and says, you gave them authority over all things. But then he says something confusing. We have not yet seen all things under their authority. Talking about people. See, God's design for us was to cultivate and rule the earth as people. But when we, and we were supposed to tend the earth with his authority and care for it and multiply it. But when we look around the world and we see the destruction throughout human history, we see that that has not been fulfilled. Yes, humanity has been given dominion and some authority over the earth, but not like we were supposed to. We have not carried out the role that God designed for us to have when he made us. And that's because since the beginning Humanity has rebelled against God over and over. And since the fall of Adam and Eve, that purpose for us to rule the earth under his authority and with his glory was lost and tainted. And we have never been able to fully experience all that God has designed for us to do. And while we cause this brokenness and the separation between us and God, God himself has to be the one to make it right again. 
Humanity needed him to come and create a man. Well, humanity needed a man to come and live out the perfect obedience and faithfulness to the Father that Adam and Eve rejected. We needed a son of man to do what Adam failed to do, to bring us back to God again. And so in walks Jesus into the psalm as that human, that meek, lowly, humble king. He comes onto the scene and he perfectly lives out a life of obedience and faithfulness to God and does not sin and does not rebel against our Heavenly Father. And he suffers and dies on our behalf. And that's why the author of Hebrew then says, we don't see all things under our authority, but what we do see is Jesus. He was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Jesus became the human who lived the perfect life of obedience to the Father and displayed God's power in his weakness. He was the representative of us as humanity who dealt with our brokenness in a way that we can never do on our own. And he did so as one of us, as a meek, lowly person of no earthly status. Jesus is the perfect example of God using human weakness to display his glory and power. And and in Jesus, the hope of restoration for us comes. And now we've seen what Psalm 8 is about, how God's plan has always been to use the weakness of people to display his glory, and how Jesus is the ultimate culmination of that, the ultimate example of that. And the last thing for us to do is to ask, what do we do with this now? What does this mean for us today? Yes, Jesus has saved us. He came as a a weak lowly person who did not defend himself and went all the way to the cross willingly and died a horrific death. What does this mean for us? There are two final encouragements that I want us to take away this morning. And the first one is this, that God still uses weak people for his glory. God still uses weak people with brokenness and, and imperfections to glorify himself and to shine through them. We can represent the power and the glory of God in our weakness today. This is the only hope we have for missions and, 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 and for our Christian life. That God comes and shines through our weakness, in spite of our weakness. Because Jesus, as our representative, lived the perfect human life, he has enabled us to live out God's purpose for our lives that we were always designed to have. And in Christ, we regain this promise to represent God's authority to the world as weak people being used by a powerful, mighty God. This is the only hope we have to continue the work of Jesus. It's because he is at work in us. And so now the eternal truth of Psalm 8 rings loud and clear for us. We can be used by God with childlike faith. And through all of our weakness, God promises to display his mighty strength. What a paradox. Through weak, lowly, imperfect, sinful people shines the glory of our God. Let's look at this example from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 31. Paul's writing to the church and says this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that a few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. 
God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. God's plan from Psalm 8 has not changed. He is still using weak and lowly people to shame the wise and powerful of the world. You think that they understand. The gospel is the power of God that makes those who think they are wise become foolish in his sight. When Paul says in verse 27, instead God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He's talking about us, the followers of Jesus, carrying the power of God in them. He's using things and people that the world considers foolish to shame those who think they are wise. Imperfect, flawed, humble, weak humans. Carrying the power of God in them, in their weakness. So that His Glory shines through. Thank goodness that God does not depend on our strengths and abilities and perfections to display his glory and to establish his kingdom. And I can say right now, if, if it was all dependent on, on me and my abilities, I would never accomplish much for God. And if I was perfectly strong and able, it would not be God's glory that's, that's showing through my life. It would be my own. And it would fall horribly short of who he is. It has always been God's plan to display his glory through the childlike faith of weak, lowly people who know him and love him. That's the first takeaway for us this morning. And the second and last one is from the next few verses of 1 Corinthians. We put the slide on earlier because we forgot to do it this morning. Well, I forgot to do it this morning. We need to depend on Jesus alone to display God's power. We cannot start to live out our faith in our own efforts and abilities. Paul says in the next few verses of 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would not trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Some of the other versions of the Bible say, I did this so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. This is coming from the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest apostles to ever live, and one of the greatest bulls of the early church that we've seen. And this is his attitude. When Paul went on mission to make disciples and to plant churches, at the center of everything that he was was Christ and Christ crucified. He says, I I forgot everything. I just brought Christ to you in me. And I came to you in weakness and trembling. If If we want to display the power of God to those around us, we need to acknowledge our weaknesses and lean into God. Know that we are weak and we cannot do this on our own. Take our weaknesses to to our Father and lay them at his feet. Are we taking our weaknesses to God daily and trusting him to fill us with his power as we go out into the world, into wherever we might go? A team of young people have just left for mission um, in Friedendal. I'm really bummed to not be able to go with. 
But if you've been on a local or long-distance mission with our church, you'll know that these young people, many of them are going for the first time, are going to learn to trust in God the hard way. And it's wonderful. It really is. When you are sharing a small space next to 10 or 15 other guys who, who, who you love, but when you're crammed in a space that big you know, to sleep next to each other for a week, your love is tested in a big way often. When you share one small toilet and shower between a team of 20 or 30 people for a week, you get little sleep because you're sleeping on the floor and there's no space for big comfy mattresses in the trailer. We used to leave those behind when guys brought them. Here, all those big fluffy mattresses. Nope. Sorry, you get a, a yoga mat for the week and you're good to go. And if someone annoys you in the team, well, get over it because you, there's nowhere you can go. You're there for a week together. That's it. And in these moments, as we're on mission together out there in Friedendale, Malawi, and Malawi, and when we used to go to Colesburg and Tulele, you'll know that you grow in your faith and dependence on Jesus because you have no other choice. You have no other choice. And all these teenagers will come back saying, my faith in Jesus has skyrocketed. I've learned to depend on his strength in a new way. The cooking was not the same at home. It was not my own bed. It was not my own porcelain, my own loo, my own bathroom and shower. I had none of those for the week. But God came through and used me. That is the testimony of everyone who comes back from mission. But my point is this. If we are on a mission for Jesus here as well, why do we depend on him any less than when we're out there? People come back from mission faithful and ready to go, and they get comfortable again. And that faith and that dependence on God dies down because we have our bed, we have our, our comfy space, we have our nice food, we have our friends around us. But the truth is that we don't need Jesus any less here right now than when we're on mission and away from our comfort zone. So wherever we are, may we see and acknowledge our weaknesses, take them to the feet of God, and trust the promise of Scripture here for us. May we believe that God uses the weak things of the world and uses us in our weakness to display the gospel of power. Maybe this morning you need to wrestle with your own weaknesses and actively bring them to the Lord, lay them at his feet, and pick up the calling that is on you to display his glory and strength in your weaknesses. Paul pleaded with God to take away the thorn in his flesh. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Amen. That's all I have for us this morning. Uh, I think we're gonna, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to end off. We'll worship team. Guys, you guys can come, come back up. While they're coming up and doing their best to walk quietly, but these stairs are really creaky, I know. Let's pray together while they come up. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word, to see your eternal promises in the scriptures. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who came to earth as one of us, experienced the weakness of being a human, experienced all the temptation and trials that we go through, yet who did not sin, and won and purchased for us the ability to be restored to you. God, wherever we go out during the week, every day, come and shine through our weakness and our imperfections and our struggles and our humanity. You have made us for your glory, God. And your glory and might at work in us as weak people is all the hope we have for life. Thank you for the promises of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.